0: One of the great scenes of theater history that just sticks with me is the death scene in William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. And it's obviously a historical play of of Shakespeare's profiling the life of Julius Caesar. It opens with him coming back, having just conquered Pompeii. And even in the midst of his victory, though, you see there's a plot against him by the senators who feel like he's abusing his power. And the plot is not including everyone, not everyone's conspiring against him, the most notably not is his friend Brutus. Brutus is somebody who Caesar trusts and cares about and is this support system of, of love and, and brotherhood. And eventually, though Brutus is reluctant to do so, he eventually agrees that, yeah, Caesar is abusing his power, and so he gets in on the plot. And so then the scene comes when Caesar is to die, all the senators on the center floor begin attacking him because they can surround him there they're you know all the way around him already and so they start closing in and, they, and he like caesar begins to fight them off he begins to be able to almost have this godlike strength so that even though like tens and then you know potentially like i don't even know how many there are like hundreds of men are coming at him he's able to fight them all off just by sheer will to live and his determination, and it's just showing like this sheer power and and ruthlessness of Caesar until the moment that he sees Brutus standing opposite him, but very much so obviously a part of the plot. And he looks at his face, they look into each other's eyes, and Caesar utters the famous line, at tu Brute, which means you too, Brutus. And in that moment, he loses all strength and he falls to the floor and he succumbs to the plot to kill him. And that scene resonates because it gets at this truth of our need for supportive relationships, our need for friendships of people who come around us and care for us and that though Caesar can fight off a hundred men when he all of a sudden realizes he's alone he turns into a puddle and allows himself to be overcome with death and that moment is what Paul is attempting to subvert for the Philippian church in his opening prayer in chapter 1 of Philippians. Let me read it. This is Philippians 1, 1 through 11. This is the opening of Paul's letter to this church that he planted and that he's writing back from now that he's in prison. And they have sent money and, and resources to care for him in prison. may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So in our moment in history, we find the support structures of our lives being stressed. We are naturally relational beings, like I already pointed out with that illustration through the the death scene of Julius Caesar. We need a large network of relationships. Not only do we need close family members and friends, but we need even just common acquaintances. And we actually need like to the tune of like hundreds of people in our life to have this large fabric of relationships. And right now, because we're in a time where there is a pandemic which literally says not only can anyone be the enemy but like there's now like even debates on how best of course to go about uh treating the pandemic or the economy and and which to preference and to start schools or to close schools and it's causing crazy amounts of division and of course we're in an election year and so the, the normal sense of just division is ratcheted up from 11 to 15 and in all of that, you see this sense of, of, you know, family members or friends or other people that are just acquaintances on social media. Uh, you know, lashing out in comment sections and and it, you know, giving a sense of like uh, of judgment uh, for you know uh, on, on all sides of, of issues, and in that you sense this similar level of anxiety rising or, or a lack of, or a depletion of strength coming from people. Similar to Julius Caesar, because our support systems, people who are around us, we're feeling like we're more having to be ready to go to battle with anyone at any given moment versus that we have a large and wide system of loving and supportive people around us. And Paul recognizes that this is a potential problem for the Philippians. Again, the context that Paul's writing into, amongst many things, is that he's writing to a group of people who are experiencing some form of opposition. Paul's in prison, and he gets word, probably from Epaphroditus, that who brought him the money from Philippi, that, hey, there's a group, there's the, the, they're in the, the colony of Philippi, which is a Roman colony, which is likely filled with, uh, you know, patriots of, of Rome, the former military veterans, and they're all ones who are loyal to the emperor, and so they have this group of Christians in there, uh, that have formed this, the, this church that are set going around saying, no, not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. And so they're starting to face pressure and opposition in the most intensive ways. I mean, this maybe is something just like social shaming, like, like our common social media, or it could be even more intense than that. Just real sense that like the, the citizens of Philippi around the church are saying, hey, you need to get on board with the fact that Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Savior, or ostr- ostracizing is going to come or worse. And so Paul recognizing that these, this young church is in a time where they are feeling the stress of being unsupported, not only does he hear that, but he hears also there, there's infighting going within them. There's a level of selfishness and pride that he doesn't really explain exactly what's going on, but he hears also from Paphroditus that there's people fighting amongst one another, and most likely it's the tension from the outside that's causing the tension from the inside, and the tension from the inside is then just compounding the tension from the outside, and it's like this doom loop going downward. And so Paul recognizes, hey, the first thing that the Philippians need is they need to form an unbreakable unity in love for one another. And Paul knows there's only one way to teach love. There's only one way to teach love, and that is to show it to people. You can never intellectually just describe love and say, now go do it. One has to receive love before they have any capacity to give it. So Paul, knowing that, opens up his prayer by just lavishing the Philippians with love. If you look again, starting his prayer really starts in verse 3. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And he's like saying, every time I pray for you, I can't pray for you without going off on a tangent, thanking our creator and king for making you and intersecting us in our lives. And he's not saying that like this is like a sappy love song, like a reject 98 degrees hit. He's saying, like, no, like as just a brotherly love, I, every time I pray for you, I just... Can't help a feeling of like wanting to sing when it out of gratitude and thinking of you. I mean, how would you feel if you have this person who's just regularly texting you, Hey, I'm praying for you today, and I'm just like, Can't get over thanking God for who you are, the encouragement of your existence is in my life. I mean, yeah, how would you feel if you knew someone that was doing that? Because typically when we say things like, hey, I'm praying for you, that's just Christian speak for, wow, you're telling me something hard and I have no idea what to tell you, so I'll just tell you I'll pray for you. And and we probably really seriously doubt that many of the people who say I'll pray for you actually go and do it. But Paul says, no, not only am I doing it, I'm praying for you regularly and every time I just feel joy. I feel joy when I think about you. And I say to God, like, you have made something so beautiful in these people that I love. And thank you for them. Thank you for putting them in my life. And Paul is trying to press into the fact that they would feel the deep love that he has for them. I mean, he even says later down in the The paragraph in verse 8 says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this reminds me of the bumper sticker. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. It says, Jesus loves you, but everyone else thinks you're a butthole. And Paul's saying, that's not how it should be. Jesus loves you and I love you just as much. I mean, when you think about how Jesus loves people, that he comes to earth, the Chapter 2 of Philippians is gonna say he willingly leaves the comforts of heaven for the joy of being with us, the joy of, of, of salvation, the cross, you know, he despises the shame of the cross and the joy set before him, he endures it. And so he endures crucifixion and torture and death because, as Tim Keller's famous for saying, that the cross is ultimately the picture of you're so bad that. You couldn't be saved without God having to die for you, but you're so loved that God willingly and joyfully ran to die for you. And Paul says, hey, I have, I'm have i seriously starting to pick up that kind of affection for you. And why? Because he says that because we have a partnership in the gospel, that we have this teaming up together in our lives, That that when you became a part of this church, all of a sudden we became... On the same mission together, but not only that, we just had this this support structure of love and and brotherly unity together. That Christians sometimes get criticized for being insular, like they can be like so like inward focused. They just go and they hang out with Christians and they have Christian community and they have Christian subcultures and Christian music and Christian fruit snacks and all this stuff, and that is not good. Like we should say, no, Christians should not be insular. We should regularly be outward facing. However, there should be this sense of man, there's a group of people out there that we are lovingly supporting one another. And that we are not necessarily doing it by by attacking everyone who attacks our brothers and sisters. Rather we're going out and when if we see a brother or sister discouraged, we come alongside them, we tangibly show love to them. Because Paul says, hey, when you do that, you did that. You did that for me. You tangibly shared resources with me when I was in prison. Again, I said last week, prisons in in the Roman world were not like, you know, our prisons today, which was like, you know, workout centers and, you know, 80s reruns on a TV in the background and, and ping pong and pool tables, like it was, if no one gets, sends you food from the outside, you starve. They're not going to feed you. So it, you, if you know someone in prison, you have to visit them, bring them food, bring them resources because they're not going to get them internally. And so he said, man, you did that. You tangibly brought resources so that I could continue to live in prison. You've shown me love. And because of that, you sharing God's grace with me. Like he said, whether this is going on in verse seven, it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you as with uh, with the affections of Christ. Like he's saying, it doesn't matter if I'm chained up here in prison, all the glory and accolades I get for being chained in prison, you get them too because you have partnered with me in this. All of that I get when I'm defending the gospel publicly and people are talking about, man, the church is rising and Paul's the one bringing it forward. When history marks who I am, you get those accolades too, Philippians. We are in this together. I remember hearing once, because there was somebody teaching on just the sense that sometimes Christians get really weird when they, like, just start divvying up into, like, well, this is my church, and this is that church, and our church is going to do that ministry, and and we're, our church is going to do that ministry, too, and we're going to do it bigger and better, and all of a sudden, it becomes, like, this big thing of, like, who gets credit or who gets their name on the building, and and they spoke directly to that one, just saying, like, it's amazing what can be done if you don't care who gets the credit, if you don't care whose name is on the building, if you... Not only as Christians, as we go through the world and we look and see brothers and sisters who need support and we're there to like, you know, regularly be a presence of tangible love for them, but we should also see that, you know, just because we're not a part of a same local church maybe with a with a Christian or maybe a different denomination or maybe there's these, these doctrinal beliefs, but ultimately we're still all wanting to see Jesus go forward. That's when Paul's like saying like, hey, team up together. Like when you teamed up with me. Now, everything that I do, you're going to get that same glory. You're going to get that same grace from God. Like, God's going to look at you and be like, man, look at all that you did, Philippians. Look how you suffered for me through Paul. Look how you preached the gospel through me through Paul, because you were you were encouraging, serving, and resourcing me. I mean, so I had a friend once who it was his goal to try to give at least a small sum of money to as many ministries as he possibly could because he's like, I just want to get to the other side of eternity and just feel like, man, I was a part of all of this. And So whether it's through giving money and resources, whether it's serving with time, whether it's just being an encouraging presence to other Christians, to other churches, to other ministries, we should have this sense that, man, we are all in this together. And that's not like a, okay, it's us versus the world type of Christianity, but rather, no, it's us encouraging one another, us being there for one another, us seeing each other and saying, man, I just want to text that person and let them know, man, I was praying for you and I thank God because you have truly blessed me through being who you are. God shows his image to me through you. And Paul's saying, that love that I am saying I have for you, I want you to lavish and just pour out with one another. And let me just, quick definition terms. I keep using the word love and love is not a helpful term in English. It's a little bit too much of a junk drawer term. And it gets just this like, I don't know, like sappy, syrupy, saccharine sense of just like, you know, feeling warm feelings. And and when I'm talking about love, I'm talking about like, you know, the classic love as a verb, a tangible display of encouragement, of grace, of of sacrificing for one another. I mean, think, if you want to just think like, what are just a simple definition of love? I think the five love languages is really helpful because those are just five ways that people experience love and those are just namely you can experience it in words of affirmation by being encouraged through someone's words acts of service somebody doing something on your behalf gifts somebody saying hey saw this thought of you thought you should have it quality time spending just quantity not only quality but quantity just sitting across from someone and spending time with them talking with them and touch i mean this is one that i think we're feeling now uh in a pandemic that maybe some of us were more needing a touch than we really ever thought we knew before. It's just all the sense where we can't hug or touch. I mean, some people are like, oh, thank God, like, you know, I've been waiting for everybody to just quit trying to hug me. And some of you are like, man, I feel like I'm shriveling inside because I just, I sense love through touch. And so, when we're talking about love at Paul's saying, I want you to love. He's like, I don't want you to just feel warmly for each other. I want you to be texting each other constantly. I want you to be thinking of each other, like thinking of things like, man, this person would be really encouraged by that gift. This person would be really encouraged if I did this for them and it saved them some time. Man, this would be, this person just needs me to come sit with them. Man, this person needs me to hold their hands and tell them I'm in this with them, to give them a deep, long hug. And yes, maybe that's not advisable for everybody in the midst of a pandemic, but there should be at least somebody probably in your life that you're able to just like say, hey, forget about this. I see that you need this love, and I'm, I'm going to give this to you tangibly now in this moment because it's more devastating for you not to experience love than, than anything else that, that's going on in this moment. And probably in a pandemic that's not with everyone, but, but that's probably with someone. And so Paul says, hey, I want you to abound in love. And, and he says it here in verse nine. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So when he says, hey, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. There's really kind of like three things. There's three layers to what he could be saying here. Um, and maybe he's not saying all of them. However, they, he does say them all at different times. So regardless if they're all here in this one phrase or not, they're all biblical. They're all things that Paul does say. But there's at least three ways that I've seen people interpret it. And again, I think I think Paul a lot of times put multiple layers in his phrases intentionally. And so one thing when he says, like, hey, I want, I want that, or my prayer for you is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. One of the, the, I think the base layer is that knowledge increases love. And by that, I mean, you must, again, receive love before you have anything to give. People in a natural state, uh, because of sin and brokenness in the world, do not naturally have love within them. I mean, that's why you come into this world kind of like fighting for what's yours, saying, I need this, this is all about me and mine. And you have to, over time, be powerfully and sacrificially loved by another. And when you have that, when you wrestle with the fact that, man, somebody has given of their time, of their energy, has sacrificed with nothing in it for them in return but only for me that affects you and you begin to be one who desires to give love to others and so knowledge I mean, he says hey I, part of what i think he's saying is when he says i, I pray that your love may abound pound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight it's like as you grow in knowledge of the profound understanding of christ's love for you i mean Paul just referenced it. I love you like Christ loves you. And like, if you are truly, not just understanding with your mind, but existentially, experientially, profoundly entrenched in a knowledge of the love of Jesus, it's like, man, that knowledge, that understanding of Christ's love is going to then abound more and more with love for others. And so that's one layer, I think. And then the next layer is as you increase your knowledge, it should be resulting in an abounding of love. And where it's not, you need to raise up your love to meet your level of knowledge. Paul writes in another letter, hey, the goal of all our instruction is love. That's a verse that some people should get tattooed on their face so they read it every time right before they read another theology book because it's a reminder of, hey, all of the reason that you're learning all the things that I'm teaching you about who Christ is, the the goal of it is that you'd become more loving. I mean, what is it about us that wants to solve love problems with more knowledge sometimes? I know I just made the point that more knowledge can increase your love, and that's true, but also there's a certain point where it's like, hey, you keep raising your knowledge, but now you need to intentionally abound more and more in love. Like people come to me and say like, hey, I'm not loving to my, my wife, I'm not loving to my kids, I'm not loving to my roommate, is there a book I could read, is there a a, a, a verse that I should memorize. And those aren't bad things to do, but sometimes it's a point where where it's I don't think it's a knowledge problem. Like St. Thomas Aquinas, a Trappist monk, is quoted as saying, like, hey, we don't have a knowledge problem. Sometimes we just have a putting that knowledge into loving action problem. And so that's layer two. And layer three is that you would learn to love more wisely with more knowledge and more depth of insight in the way that you enact your love that wisdom is more than just learning facts or or understanding doctrine or understanding jesus it's and just bible verses it's also loving well is actually how you learn to discern what is best i mean that's what he says in verse 10 he's like hey i want you to abound more and more in love and knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. It's like, hey, do you want to discern wisely what's best to do? Love extravagantly. Uh, I mean, again, with tangible action, love, and that actually is what makes you a wise person. Uh, This actually makes me think of the movie Forrest Gump, which is another favorite of mine. Uh, Tom Hanks, who plays a very intellectually dumb man. Like, he is regularly told he's stupid, and he's not, he just doesn't get good grades. He's like studying, reading, you know, just intellectualism is not his thing. But he is this character that goes through life and is regularly enacting love and therefore lives this wise, discerning, and beautiful life. And they show him not maybe having all the intellect of the other people in his army troop in Vietnam, but yet he's the only one who runs back in and saves man after man after man and pulls them out of the line of fire and gets awarded the Purple Heart. And he may not be the most savvy person living in New York City, but he's the only one sitting there loving his paraplegic friend, Lieutenant Dan, and sitting with him and being next to him. And he loves and encourages this man to get his life back together and actually at some point later becomes an astronaut. <laughs> Lieutenant, Lieutenant Dan does. And you see people regularly saying, like, are you stupid? You don't know what love is. And he, and he has these little famous lines where he says, I, I may, might not be smart, but I know what love is. And in that, you see this irrefutable, winsome wisdom of Forrest. A man who is not seeking more and more book knowledge, but instead is just seeking to love people well. And in that, he has, he lives a wise life. And Paul's saying, that's how you can do the same thing. He said, maybe worry less about how much you know, and instead, you learn, use your knowledge to wisely love people to wisely encourage people Again, by doing something for them out of nowhere by thinking of a gift by spending time with them by by giving a well-timed hug by giving a blessing of affirmation over their life by just calling or texting and saying hey i feel like i just need to tell you this Not because I even know maybe you needed it. Maybe it's just like, I just was praying for you and I was really encouraged. I want to tell you, I'm just thanking God for you. And in our time and day right now, Philippians' context and our context is similar. There's this level of disgruntled, you know, breaking of the social structures and systems, because just anger and outrage and frustration are are everywhere and are just, you know, everybody's kind of simmering a boil under the surface. And in that time, maybe more than ever, Christians cannot be ones to hold back love. Because love is what changes people. I said it earlier in this teaching, it's not shaming, it's not... Information, typically, or just information alone that changes people, it's people interacting with those who are giving of themselves so sacrificially that they have to reckon with that. They have to just like almost deal with the fact that, man, somebody cares enough about me to give of themselves, to give of their time, to do something that I would never do for them, but yet they're doing for me. That changes people. That's compelling. And, and Paul is saying, hey, I want you to be so focused on loving each other wisely that you'll encourage each other and you'll be able to get through this time of being in opposition as one band of brothers and sisters, one church. And without it, you You're just going to continue to fight through the anxiety, the depression, the pain, the disunity, the frustration, and the sense of being all alone. But with it, man, you'll be amazed what you can endure. And I think Paul shows us, lastly, by his example, you love first, Christian. You don't wait for someone to love you. I mean, that's what we tell people in marriage counseling all the time. Marriage is a constant game of you go first. That you, the person hearing this, goes first. When I'm in my marriage, I'm thinking, I go first. I love first. I sacrifice first. I encourage first. I apologize first. And I don't always do this perfectly at all. But I'm regularly reminding myself, hey, love is an action of going first. I risk, I put myself out there. And I go first. And so if you're sitting here and this teaching me like, man, yeah, like I'm kind of like, this is like a crazy time. And I am getting discouraged about like just reading news or reading social media or just like the level of feeling unsupported. It'd be really nice to have someone support me. That's very true. You go first. You start loving and supporting people because Paul talks about in other places when he writes like, hey, as I pour myself out, I actually find myself being filled by Christ as well as, as you start pouring encouragement and, and money and time and effort on people, it's not surprising to find out that people start seeing just all these opportunities to want to return it back to you because they recognize, they reckon with the fact that they have been loved sacrificially by you and they can't contain that without returning it. Love cannot sit still in a person. It has to explode out. That's true, because Christ loved us, that we love other people. And so now, because he's gone first, Paul went first, and he examples that now you, Christian, you go first.
1: that in this, I think you have one of the most important messages, not only the book of Philippians, but also to the church, particularly the church in the West and the American church. And so, Lord, I pray that um, we would live out these verses of like Euodia and Syntyche being like-minded through disagreements, through continuing to wrestle and grow in wisdom, to continuing to build the kingdom together. I pray that we would not avoid conflict, but rather we would have a covenant family relationship that is not broken by conflict, is not eroded by conflict, but is strengthened and made by conflict. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, these verses... Almost feel like a throwaway if you're just reading them out of context. If you're just like picking up Philippians, you just pick up chapter four, and you just like get to the point where you see you're talking to Yodia and Sentiki, agree in the Lord, help these women who've labored. It seems like again, Paul's just talking to like these specific people. But I would argue that this is in some ways the context for the entire letter of the book of Philippians. So here's the context of what's going on. You have Yodia and Sentiki are two women that are most likely leaders in the church. They probably lead out, uh, instruct in some way, and at some point, we don't know exactly what, but a conflict arises. They have beef with each other, and this is no small matter. We know that because Paul wrote this in the letter to the Philippian church. These letters were read, read in public. Epaphroditus would stand up like I am right now, and read this to a group of you, like you're sitting here now, and it would all of a sudden say, and insenteki," be like-minded. That Paul, that the one of the most expensive things to do was to write on parchment in the in the in this time. Every word they put on here is thought about, is worked through with a scribe. I mean, this is not a cheap process. And so the fact that Paul is committing a portion of this letter so that in public he'd have these two women hearing what's going on and saying, this is very important to me that you guys actually come to an agreement through this is a big deal. Not only that, it's most likely, again, the context of why Paul writes Philippians because it uses the same language as Philippians chapter 2. Of Be like-minded in Christ. Be of the same mind as me as you make yourself low to serve one another. And he says similarly, hey, Yodia Syntiki. I want you to be of the same mind. He's calling back to one of the biggest themes of unity throughout the entire letter. And I think ultimately what that has to regularly remind us of and call us to is that church, what, however you conceptualize the church, however you think of it, it has to first and foremost be family. And family is not eroded by conflict. Family is not broken by conflict. Family ultimately is made by conflict. I think of the concept of the book um, Anti-Fragile. It's a, I think it's a business book. I mean, it's essentially writing about the idea that there's like three different kinds of organizations or groups. You can have a fragile organization, which is obviously just something that, you know, a small startup, a young church plant, something like that, where just like a couple things go wrong and that thing's toast. Or you can have something that is a strong organization. This is like a large company, a larger megachurch or something like that, something that is strong, would take a lot. However, we've seen both in mega churches and in big companies, they can actually be taken down because they're not what the author calls for is anti-fragile. Antifragile being that hardships don't break the company, the group, the organization, the group of people, the family, but they actually are what form them together. We talk about this in our marriage counseling. That we have a whole week when we talk through really like premarital, of like how to fight, because if you Think like the idea of like marriage is like we need to get the point that we don't fight. You will be sorely disappointed. Marriages are ne- one thing that they necessarily have to do is have conflict. I mean, in Proverbs it talks about that sharp, or, you know sharpening one Christian to another is like iron sharpening iron, which is like a cute coffee mug verse. That means that it hurts to be in conflict and to grow in Christ likeness together. It is painful to have to forgive somebody who hurts you, who thinks less of you, who puts themselves above you. But there is no other way to think of church other than a family who is consistently growing together in Christlikeness by being of the same mind. The only deal, though, that we have to get over is... We intrinsically deal with conflict in the American church by we bolt. Maybe we stick around for a little bit. Maybe we switch small groups. Maybe we kind of like shuffle the deck a little bit. But eventually if conflict persists, we suddenly feel called somewhere else. It's funny because Paul is going to write in every single letter about some conflict that's happening amongst the believers. In Corinthians, and the Roman church, I mean, the, book, the entire book of Romans is based on Jews and Gentiles getting along together. And so every single time he picks up pen to parchment, he's going to talk about conflict. And he's never once going to suggest, maybe you guys just go your separate ways. And people talk about like, well, there was only one church in a city, like that wasn't really possible. Actually, a lot of times there were multiple house churches. There were networks of relationships. It would be very easy for Paul to say, you sentiki, a key, go to different house churches. Put this to rest by just not talking to each other anymore because you're causing too much division. Paul, every all 13 letters talks about conflict, never gives that suggestion once. Instead, he's going to come to things like Philippians 4 of Eurya, Sentechi, be of the same mind. He even asks for other people in the community to be a part of the conflict. He says, to my true companion, which some people think that that actually should be uh, translated to a proper name, uh, that the word uh, Caesar just is like the word true. And so maybe it like actually was a name. It's less likely there's no appearance of that name in all of Greek literature. So it'd be the one and only time. I mean, this would be like uh, the unique millennial namings of kids now, but uh, it, it would be less likely that that's the case. Some people say that maybe he's just calling like saying to, hey, my one true companion, help these women out and make sure that they, uh, they come together. Because he's just, like, trying to get by the bystander effect. Like, he just says, like, hey, my one true companion. Kind of hoping that every single person listening would be thinking, like, maybe he's talking to me. Maybe I should be involved. I hung out with Paul that one time he was in town. Uh, uh, Most people think that likely he's talking to someone who knows who they are. Probably Luke, Timothy, or Epaphroditus himself. And he's saying, hey, you should step in and help mediate the conversation. It's not a sense of like, well, that's their problem. That's their business. Church is family. And so if there's a disagreement in the body anywhere, there's a disagreement everywhere. It doesn't mean that we have to come in and be like sassy junior counselors and pretend like we know best how to mediate conflict. But it does mean that you can listen to someone and hear their conflict with someone. You can empathize with them you can care what they have to say and then thanks man (laughs) you can use the umbrella somebody if you want to you can care what they have to say and then eventually maybe not even in the first conversation you can say and now we need to work on forgiving them and now we need to work on having unity together That it's not just a continual, I don't like to deal with conflict. I just want to be the person who always is the shoulder to cry on. That's a great place to be. Again, be there, listen, empathize, and then lovingly call your brother and sister to unity. Because Paul just says, like, there's something intrinsic to Christianity to you guys being able to get over differences. He says the whole we look across the whole world it's marked by the concept of if you have a difference with someone you blow them up on social media or you like publicly denounce them or you use that as like a soundbite or something like that you don't try to work out and be of the same mind in differences. But Paul says if you believe in Jesus, call back to chapter 2. If you believe in Christ, who lays down his life for his enemies, then intrinsically, if you are filled with the same spirit of Jesus, you should have something in you that is able to lay down your own preferences for somebody else. You should have something that is able to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness, even when it's not entirely your fault. Even when you maybe don't even share the lion's share of the blame if you were to break it down in percentages. Maybe it's not your fault at all, but simply to preserve unity, you are going to go to your brother and sister and have the conversation. And yes, hold them accountable to if they are in sin, hold them accountable to if there's something is broken that they need to grow in Christ. But then also saying maybe I'm going to let this one go and I'm going to absorb this for the sake of unity. Ultimately, you have to learn to do this. Let me me take that back. Oh, gosh. I'm going to get to the end quick. Uh, You don't have to learn to do this. There is an entire church industry in America that says you don't have to learn how to do this. But let me ask this. What are we missing? Like, what is the American church missing? Because we don't have to work it out. Because we don't have to deal with the bitterness. Hold on, Gabby. Yeah, come grab that. There we go. Yeah, come grab this up. So yeah, as a church, what do we, what do we have, uh, what are we missing that we don't have to figure this out, that we don't have to deal with the fact that I need to eventually humble myself and submit to the fact that I am in Christ and therefore I can absorb your, I can absorb your sin or I can absorb this conflict. Because ultimately, if you don't deal with this, you can stoke the flames of bitterness, but at the end of the day, A, you don't get to be master of the flame, that thing will burn you out and leave you out a hollowed out shell. And B, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I referenced last week, he writes two big works. One is Cost of Discipleship, which I mentioned last week. Um, This week I want to bring up his other one, Life Together. In Life Together, he writes about community and that basically says Westerners never really get at community in a deep way because we merely just continue to shift communities whenever community gets hard. And so he says, we never actually get the experience of feeling actually known and actually loved because the moment you know someone enough that you have to actually love them, which means that they're not easy to love, you bolt or they bolt on you. And so he says, we just continually go from community to community to community, continually shifting up and continually working up like the hardest part, which is like the first... Honestly, nine-ish, ten years of being in relation with someone, most marriages claim that they got their stride at either eight or year nine of marriage. Most divorces happen in year seven. And so basically, you go all the way up the hill and then you cut the cord and you try working up the hill with somebody else because it's more fun to start over. But it's maybe more important to continue on. And so ultimately, with community, with the... Uh, With Bonhoeffer's call of saying, hey, find a community and just be there. Through hell or high water. Through good or bad. Through, I enjoy being here and it's bringing me all this good sentimental feelings in the Lord. And I hate these people. But yet I feel like I'm called in the spirit of God to lay down myself and to make myself less than. Because maybe if I hate these people, yes, I can change the people, and maybe in a few years, I'm going to hate that group of people too. Because the common denominator in the situation is not the exterior, it's the interior. And so I'd say this, just to end here. Ultimately, what this should call us to is that church particularly members of the church, you should be a really hard out. You should be a very slow to go. We should be, if there's disagreements between you and the church, you and another, we should be having a series of conversations over months or years With the attempt not to say this is what I think and therefore I'm going, but rather to say, can we find unity in this? Can we figure out how we can agree in this? If we can't figure out how we agree in this, Can we discover that maybe, yes, we will never agree on this, but ultimately it's not worth breaking unity and fellowship over because there's something bigger we're missing in the American church because we just continue to say, well, I didn't fully 100% agree with these people, so now I'm called over here for a couple more years until I find something over here. And so it should be months, if not years, of attempting to seek unity. And yes, maybe there's a time where eventually we just decide there's a time and a place to say, bless you and go and build the kingdom elsewhere. But you should be a really hard out. If you're not a member, Jordan Easley. That's right. I keep track. then you should seek to put your yes fully on the table and it's not because of it's some organizational means it's just the simple fact that like it is the members who me and now the other pastors are regularly looking through reaching out to praying for and if you bolt we will figure it out eventually we've been be slow to do that in the past, mainly because sometimes people travel like six weeks, or like if we only like 10, six weeks out of the year, traveled for a couple and said like, well, I didn't come a couple of the weeks that I was in town, uh, and you didn't notice I was gone. Yeah, it was kind of hard. But uh, regardless, if you're a member, that's still to our shame. That's still to the church's leadership shame. We should be pursuing you and knowing you, that we know if you fall off the map, because when you hit pain and when you hit suffering and when you hit life going sideways on you, you tend to isolate. And that's why you need the church ready to pursue you. You need a group of people saying, I am all in with you and they are all in with me. And then once you do, you become a hard out. That you don't, aren't surprised when we come and have these conversations if all of a sudden you bolt and say, wait a second, how can we seek to be of the same mind? That doesn't mean we perfectly agree. It doesn't mean that everything that the Spirit's calling you to, He's calling me to in carbon copy. But it means that we have like-mindedness in Christ who lays down His life for another, making others more important than Himself, taking on obedience of death, even death on a cross, for the sake of being family together. Church should be family. It should be covenant. We should be brothers and sisters. It's not that different here in Philippians. These people, Paul's writing persuasively because they have the ability to walk away. But he says, hey, the most important thing is that you continually come back, come together, because there's something fundamental that we miss to our discipleship in Jesus when we continually Switch the scenery. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that, again, we would be a family as some would downtown. That we would be groups of people that would be seeking after one another, that would be laying down burdens for one another, that would be picking up burdens for one another and laying down pride for one another. That we would be seeking to be in relationship before that we are uh, an organization, Lord, we are brothers and sisters coming together to be in relationship and family together. And Lord, I thank you for those who have continued to walk alongside us year after year. And yes, geography changes things. But for those who are still in the city are saying, hey, we are all in here. Our yes is fully on the table through the good times and the bad, through sunny days and rain spilling in Gabby's guitar. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have a proclivity, a stubborn unity to seek like mindedness together, to grow into the image of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Playable? I think so. Yeah.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm.